This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens in a Small Town. So today's episode is about bullies. And that is, well, one big bully in, in this case. But, you know, that's something that I think almost everybody has some kind of experience with. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know both of us do. Oh, and yeah. A good friend of ours back in our hometown area. She's currently dealing with it with one of her kids. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's childhood bullies. There's adult bullies. Yes. And this one is just a, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, There's good reason it was actually a Fear Thy Neighbor episode, (laughs) because this is a neighbor's. So it's part bully, it's part just disgruntled neighbor issue. Yes, but he also was kind of stalkerish. Yeah, he did kind of stalker. He was kind of like different. Yeah. It was definitely different. And <laughs> and speaking of Fear Thy Neighbor, uh, since, you know, watch plenty of this stuff. Yeah. My husband uh, recently, we have, um, we live on this little road that really, there's not a good reason to go down it. Oh, no. For many pe- reasons. Yeah. Yet it's people... literally this just like little side road. It's yeah. not even. It's... Long name for a short road at yeah. that too. But apparently, um this guy, every once in a while, we get random people that decide that our road, which is barely two cars wide, is mm-hmm. a good place to stop and like make phone calls or otherwise just sit in your car and mm-hmm. smoke cigarettes. And you're like, excuse me. So the other day, mm-hmm. Sean saw somebody down at the end of our driveway just sitting there. So he kind of watched, watched, person's still sitting there. What the heck, man? Mm-hmm. So he went down, you know, you you might not want to do that here. And then he noticed there was like part of a wrapper of cigarette pack and the cigarette pack was on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, nice. And <laughs> would really like it if you didn't litter in my front yard. Yeah. And the guy was like, oh, sorry, drove off. Next morning, two packs Jeez. on the ground next to our drive. But Sean saw him and then went walking down. He's in those uh, McMansions. Oh. He's the kid of one of our neighbors, and we haven't oh, had any nice. since. Okay. So I think this guy saw him and went, oh, shit. He might talk to my parents. But yeah. I'm just like, honey, please. I do not want to be on an episode of Fear Thy Neighbor. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, and we had an incident here at our house where our next door neighbor, somebody was visiting them, and that person actually... Uh, there was like a party going on and so there was a lot of people parked across around uh, along the street and in their driveway and this guy decided to actually drive into our driveway and then across our front yard i'm like really excuse me what the heck dude and then uh, it was probably right after christmas no it was right after new I think it might have even been new year's day or new year's eve i don't remember for right. sure what day it was um my next door neighbor she ended up being picked up by an ambulance um Ooh, yeah yeah remember really you told me about that. yeah and she's okay she's doing well now but she had covid um Oof. she got really sick she was really dehydrated um and such a nice person and it's just it sucks that that happened but i'm kind of thinking it might have been the same guy had come over i think he was like maybe just trying family friend or maybe even family member and he drove up on our lawn and i mean drive on somebody's lawn i I just don't get this and i'm just looking going why couldn't you park across the street there's nobody there it just really you you like try and drive up on our lawn and i mean he didn't get as far as the sidewalk it's like basically right in front of where the little book houses that my dad made you've got your mailbox Mm -hmm. then that book house thingy there's not like a lot of room there's not on your yard and part of me is watching him going if he hits my book house i'm gonna be so mad because dad just put that up don't do it you're gonna yeah but anyhow (laughs) yeah so anyhow this uh this episode is about a specific bully the bully Bully of toulon 
We are back in near Kewanee, Illinois again. So this place is actually only 13.5 miles from Kewanee, which you might remember we were like 40 miles away. Yes. The last one. Right. Um, So Tulane is located 160 miles southwest of Chicago, and it feels even farther. The sleepy rural town is rooted in the past as the seemingly endless waves of corn and soybeans are rooted in the farms that surround the village and drive its economy. And it's called a city, too, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Me and cities and towns are like, say what now? A whole 1,100 people or so. Yeah. 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 City. Um, Deputy Stryker, 23, had dreamed of becoming a cop since his childhood when he admired Ponch, the hero of the TV series Chips. He had grown up in nearby Anawan, so he knew the rhythms of rural, rural, rural. <laughs> Words. That word rural. is always hard. That is such a weird it word. It is a really hard word. I don't Not know why. City. <laughs> yes. Rural Illinois. As a Stark County deputy who was responsible for covering the county's three main towns, Bradford, Wyoming, and Tulane, in an area considerably larger than Chicago, although sparsely populated in comparison. Often, he was the only law enforcement officer on duty in the entire county. Stryker had been on the force just three months, but he handled his rounds with confidence. On March 22nd, 2002, Shirley Brown was on duty as a dispatcher for the Stark County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Adam Stryker was also on duty that evening and in uniform. Stryker had came to the station, checked the active warrant file, and ran computer checks on outstanding warrants. Stryker left the station shortly after 7 p.m. in his squad car and began running license plate checks. At some point, he called Brown and asked for the phone number for Curtis Thompson's residence. When the records showed that the number was unavailable, Stryker asked Brown for information on an outstanding warrant against Curtis Thompson. Brown informed Stryker that the percentage applied for the warrant required payment of $100. Stryker found the squad car keys and began the four-block ride to the man's house. In Tulan, people mind their business, but anyone, well, I take the, I, I, I'm going to kind of, people don't mind their business. Absolutely they actually not. kind of um, talk a lot about other. And they other, get into people's business yeah, in a so major that's way. actually not true. I, I'm striking yeah, we that. We need to strike that one. Um, I'm pretty sure that was in one of the articles I was reading. <laughs> and I'm like reading that going, wait. No. Why did I write this down? That is not true. That's so not true. But anyone who had known Stryker's plan would have spoken up. They would have warned him, don't do this. But Stryker did not know what Tulan knew. James Beatty stepped outside the front door of his house to watch a Stark County Sheriff's deputy in a squad car run license plate checks on vehicles parked on the street. Showing that you definitely pay attention to what's going on. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) The officer parked his squad car in front of Curtis Thompson's house, which was one one house over from James Beatty's house. James observed the officer standing at Curtis Thompson's front door with his hands at his side. As James turned and opened the door to his house, he heard a loud shot that sounded like an M80. He then saw Curtis look toward the ground and nudge something with his foot. At that point, James moved closer and established eye contact with Curtis. James then ran into the house and put his shoes on. When he came back outside, he saw that the squad car that had been parked in front of Curtis Thompson's house was now speeding toward the property of James and Janet Giesenhagen. James watched the squad car slam into the Giesenhagen's vehicle uh, Curtis emerged from the squad car, ran up to the door of the Giesenhagen's home with a rifle in hand, and kicked the door in. James then heard a woman scream, followed by a gunshot. As James ran to his house, he heard another gunshot. James then loaded his family into their van in order to evacuate the area. As they drove past Curtis Thompson's house, they saw a slain sheriff's deputy lying in the front of the house. Wow. Yeah. And you think, 
he his action was to leave his house yeah. rather than call, call the police. Them. And that was kind of what I was thinking too. And I think I'm it's like, because they knew. Yeah. That's the only guy who's on duty. Right. That's true. Holy crap. Adam Stryker was born March 7th, 1979 in Geneseo to Alan and Lori Stryker. Adam graduated from Anawan High School in 1997, where he played football. He participated in the Geneseo Police Explorers Youth Program through the Boy Scouts. He served as a volunteer on the Anawan Fire Department. He had served on the Kiwani Auxiliary Police and had been a Kiwani Code Enforcement Officer and had served on the Henry County Housing Authority Police Department in Kiwani. He had served on the Atkinson Police Department and on the Sheffield Police Department and at the time of his death was a deputy sheriff for Stark County Sheriff Department. He really wanted to be in law enforcement, oh, you can definitely. tell. Um, survivors include his parents uh, in Kiwani, his m- maternal grandfather, Virgil Cogart. Co- um, in Anawan, a brother, Alan Stryker, and their children, uh, he is married to Karen, and their children, Kyle, Abigail, and Caleb in Anawan, and a sister, Mrs. Amy Brown, who's married to Michael, and their daughter, Lauren and Moline. Yeah, <sighs> this one, this one's tough, because even though I didn't live there anymore, and you didn't either, did no, you? No, I don't think so. That was so. 2000, yeah, but... It's, um, I actually think I'm not a hundred percent sure, but the son of that family, I actually think I worked with him at Walmart mm. for a bit when I, right after my senior year in high school. Yeah. But yeah. And this guy, I mean, he graduated from poor little Anawan. Yeah. Out of tiny school. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I did my normal search of towns because I'll get into, we get into the tougher stuff later. So you can decide if this part is a fun fact or not so fun fact. Yeah. It is a, as I said, city in Stark (laughs) County, Illinois. The population was actually 1,292 at the 2010 census. So maybe a little bit going up from the one that you found. Okay. It's the county seat of Stark County. Toulon is part of the Peoria, Illinois Metropolitan Statistical Area. Not exactly sure what the hell that's supposed to mean. (laughs) Thank you, Wikipedia. You keep giving me facts that I don't know what to do with. And is the northwestern terminus of the Rock Island Trail State Park. Okay, then. As of that 2000 census, there were 1,400, so it had gone down a little bit. Mm -hmm. There were 555 households, 355 families residing in the quote-unquote city. (laughs) The population density was... uh, Basically, there were a lot of people to a small square mile. There are 601 housing units. Um, the racial makeup is what I really wanted to get to. 98.64% white. Mm, that doesn't surprise me. Not surprising at all. Um, so they had uh, basically, I think the, they, I was looking at basically how many people there were of different age groups. Um, 29.7% had children under the age of 18, 52.8% were married couples, 9% had a female household with no husband, and 36% were non-families. I'm guessing I have no idea what to expect of that one. (laughs) But anyhow, so uh, the average household size was just over two people, and the family size was right at three. Um, their population was spread out for every hundred females. There were 80 males, um, median age of 42 years old, um, median income. I talked a little bit about this in Viola that you really are below poverty level in these areas for the most part. Right. Um, not that you can't live on that though. That's one thing about living in small town, Illinois is it's affordable. Right. Um, the income at the median income for a household is, 31,792 median income for a family 40,078 so again you're talking not a lot of money what really cracked me up though were the notable people (laughs) it actually had notable people we had some in Kiwani we had some in Peoria I try to pull up because there's something interesting Charlie Hall 
Yeah, apparently all their notable people were born many, many years ago. Yeah, I see that. From August 24th, 1863 through June 24th, 1921, he was a Major League Baseball outfielder for the 1887 New York Metropolitans (laughs) instead of the Mets. I love that it was Metropolitans. I guess I hadn't quite thought of that as being what Mets stood for. Yeah. no, I've never even thought about what Mets stands for. I hadn't either. And now we know. And now we know. <laughs> Johnny Walker and not that one. Oh, darn it. I was like, Johnny Walker, yeah. Yeah, I thought, no. ooh, cool. Okay. No, no. Yeah. He was born in December 11th, 1896, past August 19th of 1976. He was a Major League Baseball catcher for the Philadelphia Athletics from 1919 to 1921. And was the full-time first baseman during much of the 2021 season. Hmm. 1921. You said 2021. Yeah. And, okay, this this next one was the 15th governor of Nebraska from 1909 to 1911, Ashton C. Schallenberger, born December 23rd of 1862 and died February 22nd, 1938. Hmm. The only Ashton I know is a race car driver. Huh. And as a female. Oh, cool. <laughs> Harrison Motorsports. Nice. Yay, Ashton. Um, and the, this last one is the one that just made me giggle. I think it's so cute. Merritt Heaton, who appeared at the age of 97 on The Tonight Show as the oldest active farmer, <laughs> totally cracks me up and is so sweet. Somebody made him an IMDb entry. Oh, wow. He was born on May 10th, 1890 in West Jersey Township. Huh. He died on April 26th in Toulon. And wow. I'm just like, how cute is that? That is cute. His only reference on IMDb is the Tonight Show episode. That is really cute. And somebody so sweetly made him a IMDb <laughs> reference. I'm like, that is just too dang cute. That is. So... Uh-huh. All right, so back to the Giesenhagens. And what a name that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, sounds like they should have been in Weathersfield. Yeah, yeah. To Jim and Janet Giesenhagen were perfectly Toulon. His mother, Ad- Ardell, lived across the alley on a homestead bought by her great great grandfather in 1829. Jim co-owned a local television, heating, and air conditioning business, and he also earned a black belt in karate, attended church every Sunday, led a Boy Scout troop, um, and led a Boy Scout troop. Uh, Janet worked long hours at a Peoria grocery store about an hour away, then went home to play with their daughter Ashley and surf the internet. Ashley played soccer and piano and remained a daddy's girl. Most Friday nights, the family went out for supper, often for pizza at Happy Joe's in Kiwani. Their future plans were simple. Save money for retirement and make a trip to Disney World. No, I went to Happy Joe's so much as a little kid. That was oh, like yeah. it for going out. That or McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of the places we went to a lot, too. In 1986, the Giesenhagens told police that Thompson's Labrador Retriever, this is Curtis Thompson, the, the, the bully. The bully. Um, his Labrador Retriever had bitten six-year-old Sean Henderson, who is Janet's son from a previous marriage, who lived with them. Stark County authorities filed charges and the case went to trial. The jury found in favor of Curtis Thompson. The Giesenhagens were now on Curtis Thompson's list. Oh, boy. Ardell Giesenhagen, Jim's mother, and others say that Thompson began to, t- to stalk the family. And it kept it up for years. Day after day, around 8 in the morning, Kurt would drive down the alley behind Jim's house, just circling very slow three or four times, almost not moving and glaring, recalls Joe Tracy, Jim's best friend. He knew that was about the time that Ashley went to school, and it didn't quit. Jim made complaints nothing was ever done. Jim began began driving Ashley the few blocks to school in his car, Day or night, he zigzagged rather than taking the shortest route, always careful to avoid passing near Thompson's house. Though Jim held 
A black belt in karate, he rarely, if ever, confronted Thompson. He knew that the man owned guns and believed that a challenge might short-circuit Thompson's temper. Yeah, and you definitely don't bring a karate belt to a gunfight. Yeah. Um, And it's really sad because it's a really short drive. Yeah. A really short walk to school. I walked far further than that. Yeah. Ardell... Ardell Giesenhagen, then in her 60s, was not so patient. After Thompson extended his vendetta to her and her husband and began to circle her house and glare at her, she told him, Kurt, you're not God. I'm not scared of you. You could shoot me today and it wouldn't worry me because I know where I'm going. But I don't know if you're going any place but down below. I love her. Yes. Thompson just glared at her. Another time when he parked in the alley and glowered while Ardell Garden, she shook her finger at him and said, Kurt, what do you think you're doing? Move it. Thompson only snickered and drove off. Well, at least he drove off. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the moment that most frightened Ardell occurred just after her husband died in 1999. She, Jim, Janet, and Ashley were in her backyard playing with Ardell's cats. Kurt drove his truck to down the alley and told Jim and Janet he was going to kill them. Ardell recalls someone called the police. Bob Taylor came. Kurt said he'd get him too. Taylor did nothing. He didn't arrest him. Nothing. Around 1996, shortly after, Joe Tracy went to work for Jim Giesenhagen. He too began to have problems with Thompson. I had no connection to Kurt, no dealings with him. My only offense was that I was friends with Jim. Sometimes Kurt would block Tracy on Main Street with his truck or follow him out of town or try and run him off the road as he walked to the grocery store. Every day, Tracy says, Kurt circled his house glaring. When he told Thompson, Kurt, why don't you just leave us alone? We're not bothering you. Thompson replied, yes, you are bothering me. You're harassing me all the time. And Thompson, Tracy could only shake his head. I, I don't get it. I truly don't get what's going on with this guy. I don't either, really. In 1999, Tracy filed a criminal complaint, complaint claiming that Thompson had followed him for two miles into the country, then jumped out of his truck at an intersection and waved a hammer threateningly. Jim and Janet Giesenhagen gave statements about Thompson's behavior in connection with that case. Thompson was convicted of simple assault, and in 2000, August of 2000, he was ordered to pay $116 in court costs, $25 a month in probation fees for 24 months, and a $100 public defender's fee. He was also ordered to stay away from Joe Tracy and his family, and from the Jim Giesenhagen and his family, an order Tracy said Thompson violated repeatedly. Here we go again with orders of protection. Mm-hmm. Jim didn't know what to do. He went to the law and he made lots of calls and they didn't do anything. Yeah. Finally, Jim set up a video camera in the back of his garage and pointed it toward the alley. Thompson drove by and glared. Often, Jim and Tracy believed that this was clear evidence of violation violation of the court order prohibiting contact with the Giesenhagens. Jim delivered the tapes to the state's attorney. Tracy said they never heard back. I remember seeing those uh, on Fear Thy Neighbor. It was just obvious. It was so him. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just like, (laughs) no, it's really, um, this case is really just nobody did anything. No, they didn't. And I don't think that they any of them knew what to do with him right and it it seems apparent and we'll go over this some more that everybody was scared of him yeah the law included more than a year after the conviction in the hammer waving case thompson had paid just 18 dollars of the recorded fees and costs judge scott shore issued a summons for him to appear before the court for non-payment thompson did not appear on October 15, 2001, Short issued a warrant for Thompson's arrest. It was this warrant, this warrant that Deputy Stryker had tried to serve the night he was shot, more than five months after it had been issued. You're just like, nobody went and served that warrant. And then some guy who doesn't know the history mm-hmm. 
goes to just do, oh, hey, because, you know, he was an, uh, an enforcement officer. He's like, okay, time to enforce this stuff. Right. Let's go look at the things that need to be done. This is why I was hired, right? Because I do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Or at least this is what I would presume he's thinking. Oh, well, look, this is easy enough. Right. I'll serve this warrant. On that Friday night in March 2002, while Deputy Stryker lay on Kurt Thompson's porch, Thompson streaked in the squad car towards the Giesenhagen house. Inside, the family was enjoying a quiet evening together. Janet was on the couch. Jim and Ashley had gone to the basement, probably to fetch a vaporizer to soothe Janet's asthma. Court documents allege that Armed with Stryker's service revolver and his own sawed-off shotgun, Thompson pulled into the driveway of the house, smashed the rear end of a parked Mercury SUV, and driving it through the wooden fence post and into a pole flying the American flag. Thompson jumped out of the vehicle with the shotgun. He climbed the four wooden steps that led to the side door of the house, leaving the squad car lights flashing in the driveway. Then the indictment alleges Thompson broke down the door to the house and burst in carrying his sawed-off shotgun. At close range, he fired at Janin, Janet, hitting her arm in sorry, hitting her in the arms and in the chest, leaving her left forearm dangled by a thread of skin as she collapsed to the floor. Then authorities say he likely moved to the basement where he fired the shotgun and struck Jim Geisinger in the face. The buckshot obliterated his tongue and the floor of his mouth. Jim fell dead. Thompson did not harm Ashley, who probably witnessed her father's killing. Finished, Thompson left the house. Ashley called her grandmother Ardell. Toulon does not have a 911 service. The town voted it down twice, thinking it's too expensive at $2.85 a month to adopt. Wow. That just... uh, Typical. Yeah. Sorry. No offense, Toulon, but this just sounds so... This reminds me of my childhood and your childhood. Yes. Your dad and working on the school board stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Anyhow. Yes. So... Ashley told Ardell, Grandma, come quick. Kurt Thompson just killed my daddy and hurt my mommy. Ardell, who did not know whether Thompson was still inside the Geisinger house, threw her shoes on, shoes and coat on and ran across the alley. Giesenhagen. Giesenhagen. It's such a weird name. It is. I, yeah. That's okay. Last episode, I tried to put Michelle in instead of Melissa. You can call him the whatever you just called him. <laughs> You know, I, I apologize Words. if I'm pronouncing things wrong at any time. It's just, yeah, it's hard. Like we were talking about viola and viola. And it's like, I could swear, but then I don't know who says it right. Yeah. So. Kiwani and Kiwani. Yeah. Mm. It's one of those things. So when Ardell stepped inside, she saw Janet on the floor, one hand to her chest and the other nearly detached from her arm. Grandma, he's down there, Ashley said. Ardell looked down the stairs and saw Jim lying in a pool of blood, a hole in his head. She could tell that he was dead, but wondered what had happened to his beard. It was gone with the rest of the bottom of his face. Yeah. Ardell called the sheriff's office. Janet asked for a pillow, which Ardell retrieve for her my back hurts janet said ardell placed the pillow behind janet's back then covered her with a blanket as ardell waited for an ambulance she went to ashley's room just a few weeks earlier after thompson had driven by ardell's house and glared ashley had locked the windows and said you know what grandma we need to pray for kurt he doesn't have anybody to love him Now Ashley's socks were soaked in blood. Let's kneel and pray for mommy because I think she might make it, Ardell told told her granddaughter. Then she noticed that Ashley had started to pack a suitcase of clothes because she knew she wouldn't be staying at home that night. That's just so heartbreaking. It really is. And I didn't, I had cut a few things out because of... There's so much There's just so much in this thing. Um... But I kind of remember, too, that, um, and my mind just blanked. That's so okay. never mind. <laughs> I remembered something, and then and I then forgot it. Oh, you know. Okay. We'll so come back to that if you think of it. I will, yeah. 
that works. The forensic and crime scene investigation evidence revealed that Deputy Stryker died from a shotgun wound delivered at close range to the neck and upper chest. Janet Giesenhagen died from a massive shotgun wound delivered at close range to her arms and chest that caused major damage to her entire upper torso and resulted in pellet fragments penetrating her chest and lungs and severing her right hand. James Giesenhagen died from a gunshot blast inflicted at intermediate range to the face, neck, and chest. Wow. So, yeah, there's all sorts of extra information. Like, I mean, they they airlifted her, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she didn't survive. It was and they airlifted him too because did you actually write about all the the chase and all that fun stuff there, yeah there was a heck of a chase yeah. and stuff for yeah him. it's there's there's again, so there's much information a lot of information on this one and i was trying to cut it down to one episode and we still might end up doing two episodes on this one we're not sure we'll yet find out shortly <laughs> okay so next thing what did tara look up okay feuds okay i didn't quite end up with what i expected but i was interested in what came out I asked the lovely Google machine, how do feuds turn into murder? Its response is primarily historical, like input from Wikipedia. <laughs> but I found it still kind of interesting because I think it kind of like leads into, we as humans have done this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Long, long time. A feud referred to in more extreme cases as a blood feud, vendetta, faida, Clan war, gang war, or private war is a long-running argument or fight, often between social groups of people, especially families or clans. Feuds begin because one party, correctly or incorrectly, perceives itself to have been attacked, insulted, wronged, or otherwise injured by another. Intense feelings of resentment trigger the initial retribution, which causes the other party to feel equally aggrieved and vengeful. The dispute is subsequently fueled by a long-running cycle of retaliatory violence. This continual cycle of provocation and retaliation makes it extremely difficult to end the feud peacefully. Feuds frequently involve the original party's family members or associates could last for generations and may result in extreme acts of violence. They can be interpreted as an extreme outgrowth of social relations based on family honor. Until the early modern period, feuds were considered legitimate legal instruments and were regulated to some degree. For example, Montenegrin culture calls it Gverna Osvera, meaning blood revenge, which had unspoken but highly valued rules. In Albanian culture, it's called Jak Marja, Jak meaning blood, Marja to take, so to take blood. Hmm. Though if you look up Jak Marja in the dictionary, it does just say, um, blood feud or mm. blood revenge um in albanian culture it it, it it in tribal societies the blood feud coupled with the practice of blood wealth which completely is confounding to me functioned as an effective form of social control for limiting and ending conflicts between individual groups who were related by kinship or as described as anthropologist max gluckman in his article the peace in the feud and i'm like I don't quite understand that one, but sure. (laughs) Max. Feuds in the 19th century rural USA. You may all have heard of the Hatfields and the McCorys. Mm -hmm. Due to the Celtic heritage of many people in Appalachia, a series of prolonged violent engagements in 19th century Kentucky and West Virginia were referred to commonly as feuds. Not exactly sure why it has to be Celtic heritage, but sure. A tendency that was partly due to the 19th century popularity of William Shakespeare and Sir Walter Scott, both of whom had written semi-historical accounts of blood feuds. I still don't quite get how that means just because they're Celts they did these things. But anyhow, the incidents, the most famous of which is the Hatfield-McCoy feud, were regularly featured in the newspapers of the eastern U.S. between the Reconstruction era and the early 20th century and are seen as some as linked to the southern culture of honor with its roots in the Scots-Irish forebears of the residents of the area. Another prominent example is the Regulator-Moderator War, which took place between rival factions in the Republic of Texas. It is sometimes considered the largest blood feud in American history. 
Blood feuds are still common in more countries than I'd like to admit. I actually printed out this whole list and you're like, what the <laughs> heck? Wow. France, Sardinia, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Southern Italy, Greece, uh, between white British, British Asian or black British and working class families um, throughout Britain and Ireland. Um, multiple diaspora communities that partake in feuding, such as Turkish and Kurdish communities. Rival crime families in Galicia, Spain. The wo I can't even say this one. Wagen, or is it Wohnwagen bewoners, the du ethnic Dutch who live in the mobile homes in the Netherlands. Some Kurdish and Turkish clans in Turkey. Um, Turkish Cypriots, so in Cyprus. Um, Albania and Kosovo, which actually they're kind of sort of the same place, but anyhow, hmm. Canadian Aboriginal tribes, uh, Pashtuns in Afghanistan, tribes in Montenegro, Somali clans, the Berbers of Algeria and Morocco, Yoruba and Igbo clans in Nigeria. Have I mentioned enough yet? <laughs> you can look this all up. It's on Wikipedia and you're just like, holy macashnoli. It is a that's, lot. That's half the list yeah half the list yeah that's a lot of people that is a lot and, of people and that it's still i mean that it, this truly is more like blood feudy and you're like what the heck mm -hmm. i'm like okay so um i then googled neighborhood feuds turn into murder and i ended up with a, all sorts of stories of individual events and imagine this id's fear thy neighbor wikipedia link was the third on this very long list <laughs> so I mean, this just makes me so sad. Obviously, murder does happen in small towns. That's the whole premise of our show. Yes. Um, but Toulon being so close to Kiwani, and like I said, I think I knew Sean. Not know, know him, but mm -hmm. like I knew of him. Because when I saw him on that episode, I'm like, I think I know that kid. And I'm like, oh, he worked at Walmart. Hmm. I wonder when he started working at Walmart because, hmm. Yeah. I think I may have known that kid. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, quite a feud too. Um, and you know, we've been talking about this. We're gonna, you're gonna hear that Kurt. People had mixed reviews. Yes. Either he was obnoxiously horrible and stalker and just whoa, or seriously nice. Yeah. So I think this is probably why there was so much in um, in print, if you will, about him, because yes. I think both sides who saw the different versions of Kurt really wanted the side they knew right. to be seen. Yeah. And I mean, he definitely did some crazy stuff. Yeah. And we wonder if he suffered from like uh, multiple personality, personality or split personality I disorder. Mean, this is like a Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde. Yeah, it, totally. it really is. It's very, it's interesting, but it's also very, yeah, very <laughs> disturbing. So how can you be that nice and that awful? It doesn't make sense. Body? Yeah, it's very contradicting. So Curtis Thompson was a 60-year-old man with Einstein salt and pepper hair, a disorganized gray beard, and he was a formal, former coal miner who had lived in the area his whole life. For 30 years, some of the people of Toulon had worried that it could come to this. Kurt Thompson was a terrifying bully. He selected his enemies for committing offenses few could fathom, then punished them through methodical stalking, sometimes for years, that derailed their lives and infused them with fear. He was the meanest person I ever met, says a man who knew Thompson. He wanted people to be afraid of him and spent years making threats. It's just wow. Yeah. A handful of Toulon residents claim that Thompson was misunderstood. They attest to his intelligence, work ethic, kind wife, and instinct to help those in need. Some even mention his sense of humor. This, there was quite a bit of good about him, says Mary Jane Swank, whose husband is Thompson's cousin. There was nothing Kurt wouldn't do for you. Few, however, expressed complete surprise at how things turned out for Thompson and Toulon. So again, this is a very Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, can you imagine a person that spends their whole day driving around their nemesis's houses and glaring at them, also being like, like giving? Yeah, it's very odd. This yes. whole story. 
Um, the shock came when Thompson began to terrorize people. Then Toulon's strength, its smallness, became its biggest liability. Residents who otherwise masked to help neighbors now advised one one another to just ignore Thompson. Police counseled citizens to just stay away from him. And we know that doesn't work. No. In the town's two coffee shops, headquarters for Toulon's Get Involved Impulse, the mantra on Lantra on Thompson became, you know how Curtis is, just leave him be. Um, How'd that work out for him? Yeah. The details of Thompson's life are sketchy. Acquaintances say he grew up on a farm near Toulon, the youngest of several children. His father died when Kurt was six years old, leaving the family to struggle for the basics. Kurt had to work on farms when he was in grade school, says Barry Taylor, no relation to Bob Taylor, who knew Thompson when they were school children. It's a rotten childhood when you have to work in grade school. Thompson married a girl from his high school class, a woman Taylor describes as fun, nice, and pleasant, and to whom he is still married. He went to work on various farms, then took a job in Illinois' coal mine, Without exception, those who knew him describe him as capable and hard worker, able to do almost any odd job or farm task. Somewhere along the line, however, Thompson began to get very angry. At Stark County Courthouse, there was a myriad of cases against Kurt Thompson. Some appear harmless enough, a dispute with an employer, traffic citations, failure to keep a dog's vaccination records current, violation of a litter ordinance, but others seem bonded by a common theme, vendetta. For decades, Thompson maintained grudges against various Toulon residents. Anyone who had taken him to court or who he perceived it had complained about him or violated his sense of territory made his enemy list. And it was a list often written in indelible ink. <laughs> I love that. Thompson's modus operandi, operandi, at least in recent years, was predictable and intimidating. According to many, he would drive his pickup truck past the home of his foe, slow to a crawl, and glare. He might follow his enemy down the rural roads that led out of Toulon, or Brock block him with his truck at intersections. Always, always, he would glare. He was a bully, says Jim Pearson, who worked at a Stark County, worked as a Stark County deputy from 1982 to 1987, and who now works as Peoria County Sheriff's Lieutenant. The glaring, the following, the threatening, he even did it to elderly people. In Wow. I'm just like, Sorry. Oh, I know. It's, and believe me, this goes on and on, on and, and on. on. It's just. He threatens everybody. Yes. Or he's really, really awesome to them. Yes. I, I don't get it. In 1980, Thompson had a run-in with Kenneth Richardson, then the Toulon City policeman. Thompson and Richardson owned adjoining properties. While working outside, Thompson and Richardson began to argue about the property line. A struggle ensued during which Richardson managed to get a top Thompson and hold him down. This is um, Sandra Richardson, um, who is Kenneth Richardson's wife. I had gone to take a bottle of pop to my husband. When Kurt saw me, he yelled to his son, she's going to hit me with the bottle. Get her or I'll get you. She alleged in a lawsuit that Thompson's son, a football player, ran and tackled her and broke her wrist in six places. I have no words for this. I know. It's crazy. The Richardsons filed two lawsuits, the first by Kenneth, claimed that Thompson had punched him and had been verbally abusive, hostile, and obscene for weeks before the incident. The second was filed by Sandra against Thompson's son, Curtis Jr. After that, Kurt would sit at the top at the stop sign at the end of our driveway and glare, Sandra says. One of the one law enforcement official who seemed willing to confront Thompson was Kenneth Buck Dyson, the Stark County Sheriff from 1970 to 1982. For nearly 30 years, well into Dyson's old age and retirement, Thompson maintained a feud with the Farish, the sheriff. That was fun. That's mm-hmm. the word backwards. Farish. Yes. I like it. I know. 
It works. New words. Uh, <laughs> Kurt would come home after dad every time he saw him. Or, I'm sorry, would come Kurt home. Kurt would come after dad every time he saw him. <laughs> this is Kathy Potassnik. Okay. I'm having issues with words, I'm, apparently. I can do this for a sec. Sure. <laughs> so, Kathy Potasnik is one of Dyson's daughters. Uh, Kurt would come after dad every time he saw him. He backed up his truck and glared into the house when my parents were socializing. He'd follow dad and flip him the finger. I can just picture old man driving by. Dad was afraid of Kurt having revenge. He told us never to walk past his house. Even, um, yeah, even among her siblings, Potasnik says, the instinct was to turn away from Thompson. My brother and I begged Dad to ignore him. But, you know, this isn't the best advice. He's just not going to stop. Until, up until the end of Dad's life, Kurt harassed him. Dad was an old man and in very poor health. He used a walker, and Kurt would still pull up beside him and give him the glare. Dad was so upset that nothing could be done about Kurt, but not just for himself. He was convinced Kurt could kill someone. And the few in Toulon who were willing to file charges were the people Thompson was on his way to see after he killed Deputy Stryker. By now, calls for help had been broadcast to officers in two other Stark County towns, Wyoming, which is six miles away, and Bradford, 15 miles away. Sources say that the Toulon City Policeman, Bob Taylor, was not on duty, but he raced to the scene upon learning what was happening. Thompson was now pointed south on Franklin Street. Backup law enforcement was still minutes away. One witness says that Thompson approached another house. This one was belonging to Joe Tracy, Jim Giesenhagen's best friend. As Thompson drove past Tracy's house, Tracy's telephone rang furiously inside. By now, friends and family had heard what Thompson had done, something terrible, and they were desperate to warn Tracy. The phone kept ringing. Tracy and his wife had eaten dinner at the barn house in Kiwani that night and had stopped to talk to Joe's stepdaughter. Their house was empty. And just because uh the barn house was very popular growing mm-hmm. up too and i remember even having some dances there just... yeah it's just one of those things yeah we didn't go out much so seriously happy joe's was about as much we could pay for <laughs> <laughs> by about eight fifteen, squad cars from wyoming and bradford along with bob taylor in the toulon city police car had converged sirens blaring Thompson <clears throat> turned east on Thomas Street, then south on Miller Street, lights still flashing on the cop car he was driving. He was within a block of his own house, where the slain deputy still lay. The Bradford policeman, driving north on Miller, came head-to-head with a stolen squad car. Thompson stopped. The Wyoming and Toulon cars, which had gone first to Thompson's house, now came racing around the corner onto Miller and stopped behind the stolen vehicle, so Thompson was surrounded. The police aimed their weapons at Thompson. Still seated in the deputy's car, the indictment alleges Thompson reached for a shotgun and fired through the windshield at the officers. The officers returned fire. Then nothing moved. The only sounds in Toulon that moment were the officers heaving breaths and the whine of distant sirens racing to save the, the, the town. Then more shots rang out. So many and for so long that some, describing it afterhood, would, afterward, would liken it to the grand finale of a fireworks display i mean the whole m80 discussion earlier we're might be a little obsessed with fireworks in the middle of nowhere illinois (laughs) then another longer siren silence this one crushing in its implication it was time for the officers to approach the stolen vehicle the police moved in their lives thrust up against the crescendo of a 30-year rage nothing moved inside the squad car they stepped closer it was toulon's lone traffic light blinking a block away on main street lit the scene in uncertain yellow Thompson had been shot in the face. He appeared unconscious. Police dragged him from the car, handcuffed him, and continued to point their service revolvers at him. A medevac helicopter landed on a nearby high school football field and airlifted Thompson to a Peoria hospital. Janet Giesenhagen was rushed to the same football field where a helicopter awaited. She was pronounced dead on the field. That night, 10-year-old Ashley took her suitcase and slept at her grandmother's house. Thompson was placed on life support at OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria. His condition improved over the course of the next week. On April 1st, 10 days after the murders in Toulon, he was transferred to the Peoria County Jail and placed in a cell by himself. 
A few days later, he appeared in court in Toulon and demanded to represent himself, saying his court-appointed attorneys in previous cases had not been worth throwing back. He finally consented to a public defender, Matthew Maloney, an attorney certified to handle capital cases from Princeton, Illinois, northeast of Toulon. So I'm kind of thinking that, um, you know, we're at about 50 minutes now. and Yeah, we're only at page 17 of our notes. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, this the, the trial is very fascinating for this whole thing. There's like all kinds of um, psychological analysis of, of right. Curtis. And I kind of feel like maybe we do this in two episodes okay. just because, you know, there's a lot there. And I'd kind of like to talk about It'll be our first two episode. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So do we want to talk about bullying now or in the middle of the next episode? I mean, we can, we can, um, well, because we can always talk more about bullying. Yeah. But, um, I mean, this, this guy and it's just, it's, oh, this guy just, yeah, pisses me off. He pisses you off, but at the same time, you're like. How can you be so nice? Right. And, and then be so evil. And some of the psychological discussions, it's like, you're going, is he faking? Because right. there was a lot of, he's just acting extra strange and then for attention. things that he like, like he said to the nurse in the hospital, and you're just kind of like, whoa. And Dude, what is up with you? I definitely will talk about that in the next part, you know, in part, part two, but... So let's, um, I'll just really quickly go sure. over the stuff I, I found. I mean, obviously, Missy and I both have our own experiences of bullying. Yes. Um, but I was like, me and the Google machine went with, hmm, how do people become bullies? And this is one of the many things I found. I just thought it was pretty nicely. Um, when you search bullies right now, the majority of stuff you find is about childhood bullies. Mm-hmm. And not all childhood bullies grow up to be adult bullies very true i mean um we have a friend who's dealing with a fourth grader who's dealing with bullying and we don't know exactly what's going on in her case but when she said that all i could think of was fourth grade to sixth grade were hell on earth for me yeah i had a terrible time with bullying at that time i think i had it worse in high school but we'll see by high school i'd gone away gotten a little more right i i figured out that it wasn't me yeah. That's the one nice thing about moving away and coming back. You're like, y'all, y'all just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's easier to have, be de- have a detached view when you get away from bullying and then you come back to it. But who knows? Maybe if any one circumstance had been a little different, maybe I would have been bullied all over again. I don't know. Yeah. Anyhow, bullying is a behavior that has historically been linked to kids on the playground but it can happen among people of any age in any setting, schools, households, workplaces. So the main question observers of such conduct have is, why do people bully others? The driving forces behind bullying may vary from person to person, but bullies share some common characteristics. For example, some people bully because they know that it gets them what they want, while others bully because they are deeply insecure. No matter the cause, bullying is unacceptable regardless of where it takes place. I'll just foot stomp that just a little bit. So um, what is bullying? It's a repeated unwelcome and hostile behavior long linked to power imbalances. Bullies often target people who are younger or smaller than they are, who work as their subordinates, or who belong to a marginalized or minority group. Sometimes envy motivates people to bully. Individuals with personal traits, skills, relationships, or possessions that bullies want to possess themselves become targets. I can't tell you how many times my mother would tell me stuff like, oh, they just, they think you're so pretty, or some other just lame, doesn't help you when you're in the middle of bullying. Right. (laughs) Bullies victimize others by using tactics, including intimidation, threats, insults, intentional exclusion, spreading rumors and lies. Oh, these sounds so familiar. (laughs) Bullying exists on a spectrum. Not all bullies resort to hitting or name calling as children are known to do. Sophisticated adult bullies may engage in smear campaigns against their targets rather than insult them to their faces. Huh. I can think of some pretty prevalent ones. Isn't that crazy? You read this stuff and you go, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I, I can think of something along those lines. Uh-huh. They might also enlist others to bully a target on their behalf. This is why some anti-bullying groups say that bullying isn't always easy to define. Yeah, yeah the whole click going after you. I might remember a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're just jealous of you because you're so smart or pretty. I'm like, that's not helpful. No. <laughs> this doesn't help me one bit. No. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm going to talk to a teacher about it. Please don't. You'll just make it worse. Yeah. However, a bully's end goal is to humiliate, humiliate or harm other individuals with the intent of ruining their reputation or harming their self-worth. Causes of bullying. There's no one reason. But many people who engage in this conduct, conduct feel powerless themselves, suffer from insecurity, feel a need to control others, or enjoy the rewards they get from bullying. And this is where I'm thinking, I think that uh, Kurt fits into the need to control others. Mm. He, from the accounts, because there's so many accounts, Yeah, it seems to me like the people who get his good side are related by family mm -hmm. or they he did something nice to them because they were lesser than him mm, that, and then yeah. they they were all nicey nicey back true but if you ever stood up or said anything wrong or associated with people he didn't like mm -hmm. you were a target yeah so that whole need to control Mm -hmm. I think that's where he, and he wants to just do whatever he wants, which great. All of us want to just do whatever we want. Right. But when there are societal rules, like you can't just let your dog go get loose and then um, bite some kid. And that's where it all went down with the Dawsons. Right. And then was like that for ages. Yeah. Yeah. For example, bullying a classmate might make a kid more popular or bullying a worker might stop other employees from questioning management decisions. These outcomes show bullies that this conduct pay pays off. Bullying is often a learned behavior. Young bullies might live in households where adults bully one another or get their way or deal with conflict. Um, to get their way or deal with conflict. They might not know how else to get their needs met or how to manage disagreements. Some bullies have temper tantrums to get their way since they were small children and were never told no. Hmm. <laughs> I like the laugh. <laughs> Jeez, I think Melissa might have one she thinks of right uh, now. Maybe. Maybe, possibly. <laughs> Others were once bullied themselves and repeated the behavior to feel powerful. Some supervisors bully their subordinates to deflect attention away from their incompetence. Other bullies believe their status entitles them to bully individuals of lower rank. These bullies might also lack empathy, have narcissistic traits, or be emotionally unstable and dysregulated. Um, controlling and intimidating others helps them to feel better about themselves and self-soothe. Yeah. So long-term workplace bullying can cause anxiety disorders. Ah, oh, no shit. Mm-hmm. Yep, and bullying is harmful, not only to the targets of the behavior, but to the bystanders and bullies, bullies themselves. Targets of bullies may develop mental health problems like anxiety and depression, experience eating and sleeping changes, feel lonely and isolated. Oh, I never felt that way. Sorry, I remember feeling so isolated, and I'm just so glad I didn't w grow up in the age of Facebook. Oh, gosh. Because it turned off yeah. when I went home. Yeah. Um, have suicidal thoughts, withdraw from activities they once enjoyed, miss days of school, drop out of school. Adults experience workplace bullying may increasingly call in sick from work. In addition, youths and adults who are bullied have sometimes resorted to violent measures, including mass shootings to get revenge on their tormentors. That's why it's important to seek out a licensed mental health professional to work through the difficult emotions that arise in the wake of bullying. Bystanders affect are affected by bullying too. Young people who witness bullying are increased risk of using illicit substances, tobacco, or alcohol. Like targets of bullies, they might also have more school absences and may develop mental health problems, especially anxiety and depression. In addition, witnesses of bullying may feel guilty or ashamed for not intervening. In the workplace, observing bullying can lower morale and increase turnover rates. That's not shocking at all. <laughs> um, but then there are people at workplaces that they don't feel like they can leave. Right. I'm, that's one positive that's come out of the pandemic. More people are willing to leave, which yeah. is good. 
Bystanders can play important roles in ending the bullying they see, particularly if they are in positions of power or have the same rank as the bully. Rather than turning a blind eye to the bullying, witnesses can call out the bully or report the bully's behaviors to others. Witnesses can also take initiative by backing up the target's accounts about the bully. Unfortunately, many bystanders don't speak up because they're afraid they'll become the bully's next target. Bullies themselves suffer consequences. They, too, have an increased risk of substance abuse disorders and quitting school. In addition, they tend to have more physical fights, engage in sexual activity at younger ages, and enter the criminal justice system. As adults, bullies are more likely to abuse their children and significant others. And while workplace bullies might be able to move up the corporate ladder, they must contend with the low morale, decreased productivity, and high turnover rates their behavior cause. They may face workplace investigations, formal complaints, and lawsuits about their conduct as well. Bullies who have some insight into their behavior may discuss the catalyst behind their bullying with the mental health provider. So essentially, if you can, if you're so, uh, if you feel like you can do this, go to get mental health, uh, seek help. But the thing is, is I just can't fathom a bully that would want to seek mental health. But then I've only been bullied as a child with one that one exception in that one office that I left right I left an office because I was like oh no this is not acceptable and I actually kicked myself there's we have within our workplace uh the ability to file a complaint and by the time I had let myself really figure out yes even though it wasn't focused at me Mm -hmm. I wasn't the focus of the anger the rage the screaming I did not file a workplace uh, violence report. I should have. I totally should have. And I kick myself that for now, for years later, because it was a hostile work environment. And, but there's just such a short window and I was totally like just, you know, in my own head going, but I wasn't the one that was the target, Mm -hmm. but it's still made me leave that job still affecting you still affected me Mm -hmm. big time well and i can i as you're going through some of the things that you know how you know sometimes people don't stand up for you know other people who are being bullied because you're afraid you're going to be the target and they definitely were with this guy well and i remember an instance where there was a kid at school, he was picked on a lot, and I remember speaking up one time because it bugged me, you know? And when I spoke up, it became, oh, you're his girlfriend. It's like, oh my gosh, can we just, just quit being jerks, you know? And, Mm -hmm. but you, you learn pretty quickly, okay, I can't speak up for anybody because then they're going to turn it on me. Yep. And that's, it's a vicious cycle. Lord knows I don't know how to turn it off. Yeah. Heck, the fact that I saw it as an adult in a workplace, Mm. you're just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, it was just really bad. Yeah. And I've witnessed it as well. Um, Not directly, I, but I witnessed the effects it had on the team that was dealing with this specific person at work and... It took a lot, even even with multiple people having complaint. It took a lot for anything to really happen. And, yeah, and really, depending on where you are working, at the end of the day, most of the time, the any lawyers that get involved or what have you at work, their job isn't necessarily to guard you, the individual who is com- the complainant, nor are they really there to... Um, guard the person who is the abuser or bully. Right. At the end of the day, they are there to guard the company. Yes. Or place of work. So, Anyhow, so we're going to turn this into a two-episode uh, event since we are over an hour already. Yes. And we don't want to do it like we did. We already have one that's gone 80 minutes. Right. We're going to try not to have hour and a half, two-hour episodes. Yeah, I mean, you And this know. will give us more time to include more of that information yes, that we had. Yes, there was a lot. Oh, there was so just much. so much. And it's like, man, I kind of want to... I kind of want to include all this stuff, but at the same time... We were trying to block it down, too. Yep. Because, yeah, they, we have twice the number of pages than we did for the last episode yes. that we did. In fact, I just got mine all out of order. Oh, so I'm going to steal last one? yours. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> 
I just want to do our end quote, you know, okay. and, and our all our contact info and you know just remember you know you can always uh, suggest an episode to us we we love getting that and we oh, yeah. do the suggestions are the greatest we have a kate episode coming up in the future she's it's a missing persons case which is different for us but i think that'll be kind of interesting right and the issue finding more details of that one is that it happened at the same time as a very high yes um uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? High, yeah, visibility. visibility. Yeah. yeah, it was a very visible national news yeah. type thing that was similar but different. Right. And actually, one of the things I watched on that other thing, they mentioned this one in passing because mm-hmm. there was a, a very short period where they were like, oh, is this person's murder related to this missing person? Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing they say about it in that particular mm-hmm. um episode or whatever that i watched yeah be like ooh, i know this case sort of and then you go i know this case but i have zero facts yeah so So. that one will probably require some digging but you know kate we totally are gonna do that yes it's just gonna take a little while for it to be an hour worth of discussion right and even you know maybe we end up combining it with some other things other missing cases if we can that might be how we deal with it because We want to talk about it. It's interesting. It's mm-hmm. small towny. It's also near Chicago again. But that's, I mean, you would expect that we would have our friends and family who yes. <laughs> live near our hometown be the ones that give us some ideas. Yes. But, you know, any listeners, and we, we did a little uh, fun search today to see who our listeners are, where they're out of, and there's there's some kind of all over the country, which is nice to see. Yeah, very nice. You know, and we're really happy to have any listeners we have. Thank you so much. We, we really, really do appreciate, appreciate it. it. We While we really do this for ourselves and our love of this genre, we... I mean, how cool is it to have people tell you, hey, I was listening and this piece, well, it does help that at least one of our fans, both of us see regularly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Doris. Um, (laughs) We love you, Doris. We love you, Doris. But anyhow, we could ramble forever. Yes. So thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. If you are interested in donating so we can keep doing this forever and ever and ever. Please. I'd um, like to do this forever and ever and ever. You, know, you can donate to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nothing, nothing happens in a small town. town. Instagram, you can follow us at nothing, nothing happens in a small town. town. Twitter, Nothing, Nothing happens, happens in a, a small, small town, town at N-H-I-A-S-D. And Facebook is Nothing, Nothing happens, happens in a Small Town, town or at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. 2021. Gmail at Nothing, Nothing happens, happens in a Small, small town, town at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. See you soon. <laughs>